Welch Society was founded in 1958 by Robert Welch, and despite its being regarded as a fringe group, its influence over the years since laid the groundwork for Donald Trump's capture of the Republican Party. Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right, the latest book by Matthew Dalek, a professor of history and political management at George Washington University, examines its heirs, including Phyllis Schlafly, Pat Buchanan, Alex Jones, Tea Party, and of course, Mr. Trump. It's published by Basic Books and brings Professor Dalek to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, this is important stuff. You say that the John Birch Society did more than any other conservative entity to propel this extremist takeover by Trump and his followers, and that we can see that in COVID denialism, vaccine disinformation, America First nationalism, school board wars, QAnon plus, and allegations of electoral cheating. Wow. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's quite a lot. Um, but the Birchers uh, back in the day in the 1960s were a major force. They uh, embodied for for listeners who don't have direct memories of them. They embodied uh, far right extremism for much of the 1960s. And well, one weren't of the they are, didn't critics dismiss them as a paranoid fringe? Well, in the 60s? Yes and, well, yes and no. Um, they did make fun of them. They were mocked as, as little old ladies in tennis shoes. But at the same time, um, John Kennedy gave speeches in which he uh, denounced them implicitly. The attorney general, Robert Kennedy, denounced them. There were investigations into them. There were multiple entities, including J. Edgar Hoover's FBI and the Anti-Defamation League, as I document, who were infiltrating the Birch Society. Why were they doing all these things? Well, because they saw there was a segment of, of liberals and even many Republicans who saw the Birch Society as a threat to democracy, as a threat to the stability of the two party system. And frankly, as an organization, because of the conspiracy theories that Eisenhower was a communist, for example, mm -hmm. the conspiracy theories were undermining, they said, faith in America's democratic institutions and democratically elected leaders. Hasn't it been thought to be dead for a long time? And also, well, the Birches yeah. weren't the only movement that helped to radicalize conservatism and the Republican Party. Were they the That's first, right. the most, the first and most important one at, initially? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my argument is that first of all, they were not alone by any stretch, and I also try to document in the book how they faded as an organization. Um, they uh, also succeeded McCarthyism. Uh, and, and Joe McCarthy, uh, the senator from Wisconsin, was one of uh, their heroes. So they were absolutely uh, a part of, and you could go back to the 1930s or even earlier. Um, but what I argue is that they bequeathed to successors and they helped to forge a number of innovations in politics and a set of ideas and tactics that successors were that they basically forged an alternative political tradition on the far right. And it was not uh, the dominant tradition, but as the biggest, uh, most influential far right group of the 1960s, uh, that that successors, as I put them, uh, could pick up on their on their movement and and basically update their ideas to 
uh, more contemporary uh, issues. You mentioned uh, that they trashed uh, President Eisenhower. Um, did Birch's, despite the establishment, not just liberals, but also mainstream conservatives? Did they? Did the Birchers trash them, are you asking? Yes, because you begin yeah. your book with a yeah. Bircher campaign against an established Republican yeah. in a local election in California. Yep. A Republican, not a Democrat. Absolutely. Well, and it was the reason I opened the book uh, that way is this is a story of Patricia Hitt. And she was a Nixon a loyalist. And actually, she became a, a, a undersecretary of state or assistant secretary uh, of uh, uh, human uh, health and human development uh, in the Nixon uh, White House in the Nixon administration. But in 1962, the Birchers basically ran this very aggressive, intimidating campaign against her because they saw her as really part of the uh, uh, Republican establishment that was leading the country toward a communistic present and an even more a communistic future. So they loathe people like Richard Nixon. They opposed Nixon in his 1962 uh, California gubernatorial uh, campaign. They they supported a guy named Joe Schell in the primary against Nixon. Um, and their relationship, even with someone like Barry Goldwater, who was seen as a, a hero of the Birchers, a hero of the far right, um, and Ronald Reagan, their relationship with them was um, was spotty. I mean, yes, a lot of Birchers helped Goldwater win the nomination, but I have some evidence in the book that even in the fall 64 campaign uh, or uh, afterwards, there were a number of, of Birch leaders who soured on Goldwater well, and uh, got into it with him. Is it relevant that uh, William F. Buckley rejected them? It is relevant, yeah. Um, and I, I talk about Buckley. Well, so Buckley... Uh, pointedly uh, assailed Robert Welch. And he wrote a series of editorials uh, in uh, a 60, 1962 and then a bigger uh, uh, editorial in 65. Um, although Buckley, as I try to show in the book, was really on the horns of a dilemma, which is that he did not, and this is true of Goldwater too, they did not want to alienate the rank and file or they were worried, at least, that they would alienate the rank and file. And what they really called for, what, what Buckley called for, was Robert Welch, the founder and the one who, who charged that Eisenhower was a communist, that Welch and his conspiracy theories needed to be basically uh, abolished from the Birch Society. And if you expel Welch, then these other fine patriotic Americans, they would be OK and they could stay in the movement. So it was a very targeted uh, uh, effort. And, you know, no one had the power to excommunicate the Birch Society from the conservative firmament. Um, but uh, what I argue is that Buckley and other historians have argued this, too, that Buckley, um, he never excommunicated them. And he made basically a kind of a halfway or half-hearted attempt. Now, the, the Birches also opposed the United Nations and foreign aid and arms control. Yeah. Well, all so communist plots. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, the U.N. was uh, seen as uh, run essentially by uh, socialists or communists in the Birchers worldview. And they argue, Birchers argued that the United States had ceded its sovereignty over to these international bodies. And 
one of the ideas, you know, you read that list of things I credit them for. One of the ideas that I think that they helped to sustain and also forge ahead in the late 20th century at the height of the Cold War was anti-interventionism, a kind of isolationism, a concern about the nation's borders. And uh, and they one of their big campaigns was get the U.S. out of the U.N. and the U.N. out of the U.S. And they had billboards to that effect. Is it relevant that Dallas, where John F. Kennedy was assassinated, was a Bircher hotbed? Well, uh, that's just a coincidence because the the crazy Bircher could have been anywhere. Right. Yeah. Well, um, it's it's not irrelevant. I mean, it it is in the sense that uh, there were Birchers and others on the far right in Dallas who were. Um, taking out ads, basically, prior to Kennedy's visit in 63, accusing Kennedy of treason, mm-hmm. you know, uh, saying that that he was uh, a communist and a traitor to the United States. And he used that um, against them, didn't he? Oh, yeah. He gave a series of speeches in 19, I believe it was 1962. Um, and in one in particular in Los Angeles, he doesn't mention the Birchers by name, but he it's clear what he's talking about. And he, you know, basically says, look, you know, there are these groups that occasionally come along in American, American history, and they're trying to stop the march of progress. They see basically ghosts, communists, you know, uh, menaces under every rock, and that we need to deal with the real problems, legitimate threats to the country overseas. And so he absolutely uh, uh, exploited the Birchers as a political issue, and uh, as did other uh, uh, Democrats and even some Republicans. But initially, as a document in the book, after Kennedy was killed, some Birchers were concerned that it was going to be either a Bircher who assassinated him or someone affiliated with the Birchers. And one actually said, as I document in the book, uh, this is the end of the Birch Society. Hmm. Well, it turned out, of course, that it was you know someone loosely affiliated with uh, the left, and the Birchers were able to exploit that Lee Harvey Oswald, Oswald as the assassin, and spin all sorts of conspiracy theories, none of which were true, uh, that um, that they were right all along that this was a communist internal communist plot to uh, take down the United States. Now you mentioned that Robert Welch founded it. On December 9th, 1958, at a secret meeting of 12 men in Indianapolis. Now, mm-hmm. he was a, a candy manufacturer. Had he retired then? And was he now yeah. only involved with politics? Yeah, he had retired a, a, a year or two previously. Um, and he had decided to dedicate his life to trying to educate the country, the American people, about the internal nature of the communist conspiracy. Uh, He had uh, been a leader in the National Association of Manufacturers, a leading industrial lobby. He had been giving uh, speeches uh, about the communist threat, the communist conspiracy for uh, about a decade. Uh, And he had written a number of books uh, to this effect, including uh, A Life of uh, John Birch and the Politician, charging Eisenhower with with being a communist. And um, and he was wealthy. And despite his being a war hero, both he and Kennedy were war heroes. Yeah, well, look, the Eisenhower charge, when it became public in uh, 1961, 
for that reason, because Eisenhower was a war hero, especially it, um, it, it set off a firestorm, right? The equivalent of a, of a feeding frenzy and went today, what we would call viral. Uh, it was a huge story because, you know, Eisenhower, right? The slogan about Ike in his campaigns was, I like Ike. And, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, uh, uh, someone who was least like a communist. Um, and uh, and so and Welch actually tried to walk it back once it became public and said, well, that was just my personal belief. It's not an official uh, uh, Birch, Birch or dogma. Um, so it was uh, it was very offensive to many Americans and it made the Birchers into a, an epithet. They were not only anti-communist, but also against the civil rights movement, the New Deal. Um, where does Fred Koch come into this story? Well, at that meeting in Indianapolis that you just referenced, Fred Koch was one of the 12 men in the room. Mm -hmm. And they sat in the living room in, in a home of a sympathetic uh, ally uh, in Indianapolis for two straight days. And Koch was, was one of them. Uh, and Koch was also, uh, you know, these were, for the most part, these initial founders were wealthy. They were um, white, um, primarily Christian, and they were primarily industrialists. And Koch uh, fit very nicely into that. And he was very active in Wichita uh, uh, in the anti-communist movement. And uh, he, was a, he was a proselytizer. He was a crusader. And uh, and so he very much. And in fact, I found a letter I didn't even include it in the book, but I found a letter at the Library of Congress in which he's trying to recruit the CEO of Eastern Airlines to become a member of the of the board, the national uh, board or council of the Birch Society, saying basically the Birchers are the most effective grassroots anti-communist organization in the country. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at large is Matthew Dalek. His latest book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right, published by Basic Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, it was originally based in Belmont, Massachusetts, but now it's headquartered in Grand Chute, Wisconsin. Why there? Why Although, Belmont? Well, it, Belmont was uh, where Robert Welch, the founder— uh, uh, had made his home. Uh, he uh, was a, a candy uh, magnate. He was a salesman for uh, his brother's candy company. He lived in Belmont. And before setting up the Birch Society, he had a bit of a publishing arm. I mean, he published his books. He had a, a, a magazine uh, that he was uh, putting out. And uh, he basically turned that operation into the headquarters for the Birch Society. So it's not exactly, uh, you know, Massachusetts is not. Ex and also he ran for lieutenant governor as a Republican mm. in 1950 uh, uh, in Massachusetts. So he had um, a variety of ties to the state and, of course, to Belmont. Um, they ultimately, I believe in the 1980s, picked up and moved to Wisconsin. I thought it was Appleton, Wisconsin, which was the home of uh, Joseph McCarthy. Which has, of course, well, I read that it was Grand Chute, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah well, uh, either way, I think the 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 association with Joe McCarthy was important symbolically uh, to the Birch Society, and one reason behind their their switch 
but yeah, and, and actually the Berchers, um, you know, you asked about Dallas earlier as a hotbed of Bircherism. Um, what I found is that actually the country, really, the Northeast uh, had many Birch chapters, places like mm-hmm. Massachusetts. So places that we, we don't necessarily think of as the hotbed of conservatism in the 50s and 60s were uh, very uh, 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 receptive in some ways to uh, Birch uh, movements. Now, you mentioned publishing. It owns American Opinion Publishing, which publishes the magazine The New American, also affiliated with an online school called Freedom Project Academy. So mm-hmm. it's even though many people probably think it's dead, it's still quite active. Well, yes. Yeah. So the Birch Society never went out of existence. It, it still exists. It has an organization uh, to this day, as you mentioned. Um, but it, it really, by the early to mid-1970s, it really was a, a shell of its former self. Hmm. Um, it had faded as a central point in the debate in American uh, politics about democracy and about the, the two-party system. Um, but what's interesting about what you mentioned um, is that American opinion, the publishing books, a magazine, the education school they've set up, they really were founded, and, and this was their 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 motive or their kind of motif, right, was education. They, they saw, as one Bircher said, the society as the answer to every anti-communist prayer because it allowed Birchers to get active in their community to try to educate the public about the impending communist takeover. And so education really was at the heart of the movement from uh, the beginning, education as they defined it. But it never seemed like there was a real communist threat. Didn't that hurt them? Well, yes and no. So I guess if you're I paranoid, argue, you believe <laughs> even the most minor thing is an important uh, threat. Well, you know, you say, didn't it hurt him? I mean, it did in a way. And you can I think one can make a case that the conspiracy theories that they had, which were really unrelated to reality, they did hurt the Birch Society because over the, the 60s, they attracted more and more radicals to their ranks. They can, attracted more and more anti-Semites, more and more anti-Black racists. And the conspiracy theories invited people, uh, those people in. And the movement kind of radicalized uh, uh, itself. At the same time, I argue that they innovated, uh, or, or they were one group at least, that understood how uh, charges, baseless allegations of a plot against America, an internal plot against America, can motivate or mobilize at least a subset of citizens to get active in the struggle for power. And the Bershers were very effective at doing that. So the conspiracy theories, politically speaking, I think were both a, a strength to them, but also a, a real uh, weakness politically. Was the scene in the movie Dr. Strangelove where Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper rants about a communist plot to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids inspired by their rhetoric? That's my understanding, yeah. And one of the, the things about the Birch Society is that in the 1960s and beyond, I think even to this day, um, the Birch Society insinuated itself for all sorts of reasons into the popular culture. And one of the 
uh, most prominent conspiracy theories the Birchers had was that fluoride hmm. in the drinking water, right? Fluoride put there in order to, especially for kids, to prevent tooth decay and cavities. The fluoride in the drinking water was a communist plot, or it was basically a communistic step by the government to weaken or destroy American liberties. So my understanding is that that great scene, the famous scene in Dr. Strangelove, is really a spoof on uh, on the Birchers and on this uh, uh, conspiracy theory about fluoride in the water. And their website called Fluoridation a form of government mass medication of citizens in violation of their individual right to choose which medicines they ingest. Yeah, yeah. Well, some Birchers, uh, yeah, I mean, that I think is consistent with the, the ideas and language from the 60s. Some Birchers uh, thought that there was poison in fluoride, that this was a way of communist poisoning uh, of the public or maybe a form of mind control. But ultimately, yes, it was seen as really an insidious by Birchers as an insidious step by government at the local level and the federal level as well by these public health authorities. And this gets back to the COVID vaccine uh, 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 denialism or conspiracy theories that these public health experts and government experts mandating these public health decrees are really a way, a wedge issue to destroy individual liberties and really destroy the Constitution and trample on what made America America. Didn't a childhood neighbor recall that Ginny Thomas's parents were active in a losing 19, uh, is it 68? 68, 68 yeah. A referendum campaign in Omaha to ban putting fluoride in the water supply? Do yes, we know if they correct. were purchased? Well, so, you know, it's it's interesting. I've, I've had this question a couple of times. Um, I have found no direct evidence that my, my guess is that they were, but I, I don't know for sure. Um, the parents, because they were active, uh, according to Kurt Anderson, uh, whose family grew up across the street from from now, Ginny Thomas, uh, they were active in this anti-fluoride campaign that really in 68, that really is has a it's kind of a Birch signature issue. And he says this uh, uh, journalist says that his parents who were Goldwater Republicans viewed Ginny Thomas's parents as Birchers. Um, but it's very hard to suss out sometimes whether someone was a member or not, because the Birch Society didn't keep, you know, kind of lists. They certainly were not made public of all their members. Their records are really quite spotty. But, yeah, my guess is that they were if they were not technically members, they certainly were sympathetic uh, to uh, the Birch Society. Well, they were opposed to fluoridation, but didn't they believe that Laetrile is a cancer cure? And that yeah. uh, ivermectin is, is a miracle drug. How did they come yep. to that? Well, uh, yeah, laetrile, I think you're talking about the apricot seed. Yes, uh, it's, an, it's yeah. an apricot derivative. Yeah, derivative, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's very hard to trace where a lot of these conspiracies come from. Uh, first of all, conspiracy theorists usually have more than one conspiracy theory. They're often conspiracy entrepreneurs. They uh, understand how to sell an idea, a product. They know how to market it. They know how to make it appealing to, again, a subset of people. 
Um, and uh, Latriel, I don't know the exact origins of that in particular, but yes, there were some birchers who, and I think later in the 60s and 70s, who claimed, including a guy named Larry McDonald, who was actually a, a urologist in uh, uh, Georgia, uh, part of the seat that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, now uh, uh -huh. represents. And uh, this doctor, Larry McDonald, uh, he was sued by a patient for prescribing latrille as a cure for cancer. After the patient died, the, family's, uh, the, pa the family of the patient sued him. Um, so look, it was seen as a kind of miracle cure that the public health authorities and experts were hiding basically from the public. They didn't want people to know it. Um, uh, you know, it's sort of a hard theory to follow, as are many of these theories, but it did become um, a, a live wire for the Birchers, at least for a time. Do you see Marjorie Taylor Greene as somebody who was influenced by the Birchers, or is she even more extreme than they were? Yeah, I do see her as someone who was influenced by the Birchers. Um, one of the arguments I make in the book is that you know, members of the far right today or, you know, the MAGA movement do not necessarily have to be aware of the Birch Society to be influenced by them. It's not like they have to take a course on the Birchers or to have read my book or another book about the society because the ideas and the tactics have a life of their own. They have an afterlife. And so um, what I try to do is to trace out how some of these core Birch ideas, the anti-interventionism, uh, the ex more explicit racism, the conspiracy theories, the more violent, apocalyptic, anti-establishment mode of politics, uh, how these ideas uh, influenced far-right uh, successors and groups uh, in the decades since. And Green, I think, very much adopted a lot of those ideas that, that the Birch Society also had. And, uh, you know, you can you can find plenty of examples of it, whether it's, you know, her time about Jewish space lasers or uh, the election denialism, you know, that uh, around the 2020 election. Um, Birches were anti-Semitic, basically. Yeah, well, as I document in the book, first of all, you know, I, I try to be careful not to say every Bircher was anti-Semitic because I don't think they were. They did make the society made some efforts to police its ranks of anti-Semites and of racists. Uh, I found one memo in which a, a Birch member who was an outright anti-Semite wrote in saying, you know, I've been studying the issue of communism and I realize now that it's it's one root, the Jews. Hmm. And he goes on this anti-Semitic uh, rant. So they were uh, there were definitely members, but the headquarters, people in headquarters said, wrote to each other on this memo, is this guy anti-Semitic or what? And then someone else in headquarters wrote, he's a wild man, drop him. So there were some efforts to police the ranks. But as I try to document in the book, there uh, was a lot of anti-Semitism that was leaking up uh, from below and also coming down from the top. And that it was very hard for the society to uh, 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 expel all of the anti-Semites, and that in some ways, especially the conspiracy theories, drew all sorts of uh, anti-Semitic and racist uh, individuals to the movement. They found it a welcome home, and then sometimes they realized, well, the Birch Society is maybe not explicitly anti-Semitic enough for us, and they would go on to a more explicit uh, a white supremacist group. But obviously... 
World War II had not resolved those issues in many people's minds? Well, there was a reason why the Anti-Defamation League, uh, they had good reason, as did many other uh, leading liberal organizations of the time, the NAACP, uh, union-backed uh, uh, organization called Group Research, uh, and, and other groups, why they were so concerned about the Birchers. And uh, they saw them as a threat. And one of the ways they saw them as a threat was that uh, the conspiracy theories they were spouting, as one Anti-Defamation League uh, official put it, uh, uh, usually they're going to, what he said was that they were going to add the usual Jewish fill-up to these conspiracy theories and that uh, uh, they were going to uh, uh, target Jews. And um, and so, you know, and, and as I document in the book, they had some cause for concern because as uh, they uncovered through this spy program that they, they basically ran. They, the uh, Anti-Defamation League infiltrated the, the John Birch Society, yeah. you discovered. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, big time. Yeah, and actually, I think that they were more effective than the FBI, which had its own uh, infiltration campaign. Uh, but I think they were more effective and in some ways maybe more aggressive. And uh, they uncovered all sorts of dirt on uh, the Bircher. So one quick example was uh, uh, Birch, the FBI actually asked the ADL to track a Bircher in Pennsylvania. And uh, apparently this Bircher was going around and giving speeches claiming that bones found at Buchenwald, hmm. the concentration camp, were not those of Jewish victims of the Holocaust, but American soldiers killed by communists. And so the ADL was able to unearth and also feed to the press and in its own publications expose uh, a lot of the uh, the hate that uh, that members of the of the Birch Society were pushing. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. was a man of God, spreading his word on China's soil. When the rising sun cast shadows o'er the land, General Chenault asked him to lend a I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Matthew Dalek. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give in the number 2, WBAI.org, or call 212 212- Two zero nine two nine five zero. That's two one two two zero nine twenty nine fifty. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that fifty dollar or more donation in the name of London Lopate at Large. We thank you very much. And return to Matthew Dalek, who is a historian, professor of political management at George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, and the author of a number of books. The one we're discussing, his most recent, is Birch's How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right. It's from Basic Books. And you've dedicated this book to your father, Robert Dalek. 
That's right. That's right. Uh, I uh, dedicated it to my dad, who, uh, as I say uh, in the inscription, uh, is a great historian, uh, but an even better dad. And uh, he, uh, I think he's written 15 books, right? He's a presidential historian. Uh, but, um, you know, I wanted to uh, give him uh, his due. And uh, he's dedicated many books to many other people, including to me and my sister. And um, I thought it was time that uh, he get a little recognition that way. And did he get you thinking about writing history books of this sort and becoming yeah. a historian? Well, certainly becoming a historian. I don't I don't know about um, these kinds of books in particular about the far right. He he more does presidential history and foreign policy. But absolutely. Um you know, my dad, uh, he's basically retired from uh, teaching now. But, um, you know, in addition to being just a very uh, a good person, a sort of decent person, uh, he also really was a, a fantastic teacher. He taught at UCLA for many decades and uh, was really, you know, inspiring in that way. So um, even though, you know, I had, have had mixed feelings, right, about uh, doing something very similar to what uh, he has done, um, uh, it certainly got me uh, thinking and also it gave me exposure to, you know, how does one go about writing a history book based on uh, thousands of archival documents? And uh, and so in that sense, it was, a, I guess, a kind of advantage. Didn't that song we just play give us a clue as to why they chose to name it the John Birch Society? Because he was a missionary yeah. and intelligence officer yeah. who'd been killed in China by Mao's. Um, yeah, his forces in 1945. So. Yeah, what was interesting about the song is that when you listen to the lyrics, you get a sense of him as a martyr. Mm -hmm. And the Bird Society had a number of martyrs, but the original one and the most powerful one was, of course, its namesake, John Birch. Uh, and Robert Welch, the founder, had written a short biography of Birch in 1954, I think, called The Life of John Birch. And what he argued was that not only was he the first victim of World War III, you know, Chinese communist forces, he was murdered by them, but he also alleged, based on no evidence, but alleged that the State Department and other federal uh, bureaucrats had covered up the murder because they were in on the plot. You know, they were part of the conspiracy. And so, you know, John Birch, in that sense, the name did the kind of martyrdom and inspiration, that sort of work for the Birch leadership and the Birch members. But it also evoked this broader conspiracy that they charged uh, was uh, afoot uh, inside the United States, inside the federal government. You write that in the 1930s, Fred Koch had helped build oil refineries first in Stalin's Soviet Union and then in Hitler's Germany. Um, and his experiences with both regimes shaped his Cold War philosophy. In, in the USSR, he knew people had been purged by Stalin. But didn't he like what he saw when he inspected his refineries in Nazi Germany? Yeah, that's my understanding, and that's I think primarily based on uh, Jane Mayer's uh, work and her book uh, *Dark Money*, um, and other works on Fred Koch. Um, but yes, he uh, he said uh, uh, kind things, basically admiring the efficiency of the uh, German Nazi uh, economic system, 
and uh, and you know, and and apparently had some uh, sympathies for. And you know, there were other, including Robert Welch, who in the 1930s and even in the early 40s were either sympathetic to or members of America First, right? The America First Committee, which uh, of course uh, led by in part by Charles Lindbergh had ties to uh, anti-Semites and also some elements of which were also pro-Nazi, right? The American First Committee opposed U.S. intervention in uh, World War II in any form. These days, hasn't the Koch-funded Quincy Institute taken a dim view of United States and Western assistance to Ukraine? Why? Yeah, um, well, I... That sounds right to me. Um, I don't know that uh, uh, for sure. Um, what I can speak to, though, is that on uh, within the Republican Party, and this is one reason why you know I argue that the Birch legacy lives on. There has been a shift over the past you know ten to fifteen years, in which uh, much of the Republican Party, though certainly not all, but much of it has become much more. Uh, uh, anti-interventionist, much more isolationist, uh, anti-free trade, uh, and uh, and some elements have become anti-immigrant and nativist. Does that go back way, to uh, Afghanistan and Iraq? or I think, yeah, as I argue in the book, I think, um, well, a couple points. One is I think the end of the Cold War opened up space for people like Pat Buchanan to argue for America first, right, to revert back to that pre-World War II uh, legacy of U.S. isolationism. And people like Buchanan and, and Ron Paul picked up that, that mantle. Um, and so the end of the Cold War, I think, is a very important kind of uh, moment and, and had a lot of ramifications in that respect. And then I think the failures of, uh, of George W. Bush's wars uh, although he's not the only person responsible, of course, but in Iraq and Afghanistan, soured. And then the general souring, at least on some of the right or the far right, on George W. Bush's presidency in, in his second term, I think that opened up a lot of space for someone, for example, like Donald Trump to argue. I mean, Trump in 2016, he ran against the Bushes. He ran against Jeb Bush and he ran against the Iraq war very explicitly. And uh, I think that represent and he ran against George W. Bush's and the Bush family's uh, support for immigration reform as well, which was another uh, policy that most conservative mainstream conservative Republicans supported for many years. So I think you do see the, the significant shift uh, in foreign policy that explains the original uh, your original question about the, the Quincy Institute uh, opposing aid to Ukraine. But they uh, avoided becoming a third-party splinter group. Why? Wouldn't that have uh, given them more substance? The Birchers? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The Birchers flirted with third parties. They uh, talked about it. and um, But ultimately, uh, first of all, there were a small number of Republicans who— they were very sympathetic to, and, and frankly, even some Southern uh, Democrats, very conservative Democrats, who they saw as um, uh, sympathetic to the Birch Society's views. 
So they were willing to support them, although it was informal, right? It wasn't like a formal endorsement. Um, the Birch Society also, at least the leadership, believed that the, the political system, in a way, was not going to save the country. The only thing that was going to save it was to educate the American people in time. And so they waged a kind of information warfare. They tried to take over school boards or PTAs. They tried to vet textbooks. They tried to ensure that what was on the library, public library shelves were, quote, Americanist, right, patriotic texts, uh, not uh, pro-socialist. And so that was the primary channel into which many members uh, put their energy. Um, and, and then I would say they did uh, do a third-party route. In 1968, many Birchers supported George Wallace, mm. who ran on a third-party ticket. And then in 1972, for Richard Nixon's uh, re-election campaign, two Birch leaders, John Schmitz and Tom Anderson, ran on an American Party presidential uh, ticket, a, a third-party ticket. They got about 1% of the uh, popular vote nationally, so they didn't do that well. Uh, but uh, they were very much opposed to Richard Nixon's Republican Party. and um, But I think they're also savvy enough to realize that third parties tend to uh, not get go very far. My guest on today's Lended Low Pit at Large is Matthew Dalek, D-A-L-L-E-K. His most recent book, Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right, published by Basic Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You don't mention this in the book, but I remember that in 1984, three members of the San Diego Padres, Eric Show, Mark Thurman, and Dave yeah. Trebecki, revealed that they were members of the John yes. Birch Society. Yeah. Well, I and and actually, I do have a very brief phrase mentioning it, right? Mm. Uh, I, I forget the chapter, but it is in there. Um, but it's an interesting moment because, you know, the Birch Society, even though, as I said uh, earlier in the hour, the Birch Society fades as a group by the, the mid-70s, certainly, they continue to pop back up in the news. And so when these three baseball players, I think they were all pitchers uh, mm. for the San Diego Padres, when they uh, acknowledged, they were happy, I think, to acknowledge that they were members of the Birch Society, uh, it was a big news story for a few days. Um, and and you would see that the Birchers kind of keep popping up. Uh, you know, they have a, a they'll have a booth, for example, at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, or um, Mick Mulvaney, uh, one of Donald Trump's chiefs of staff, a former congressman, he gave a talk to a group of birchers. And so you can see how they kind of keep popping up in the political culture. And um, and that moment in the mid 80s was certainly uh, one of those times. Most of the people we're talking about are men. Have women played much of a role in this society? I'm, I, I, I think absolutely. Phyllis Schlafly was a bircher, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. And, and they're absolutely uh, women. And actually, I argue, I have a whole chapter uh, devoted to, to women. Uh, uh, entitled Little Old Ladies in Tennis Shoes, because that was the derogatory name the California Attorney General uh, bestowed upon uh, the Birchers. Um, but what I argue is that it was actually the women at the chapter level. So even though the men, uh, the, the leadership uh, in Belmont at the headquarters and, and below that those levels was almost exclusively men, at the chapter level, the women could take 
the recommendations, right? The, the orders in a sense from Birch headquarters and they could make them their own. Uh, and they were extremely active uh, running local uh, uh, Birch Society bookstores, uh, involved in PTAs, um, in uh, protests. Uh, and um, they basically, to argue for a kind of older vision of American morality and gender roles, uh, a pre kind of World War One almost a vision, but they also uh, took advantage of a feminism second wave, right? The idea that it was more acceptable for women to enter not just the workforce, but also politics. And you see Birch women, ironically, Phyllis Schlafly is one example, who are getting very active politically. Uh, and it's becoming very acceptable, even as they're arguing, for example, against the teaching of sex education in the schools. Well, she opposed the Voting Rights Act, wrote Barry Goldwater's 1964 mm -hmm. manifesto, and yeah. successfully opposed the Equal Rights Amendment. So yeah. she had yeah. real impact. She did. Now she as a uh, bircher, or was that or was she, she separating herself she, from the group? She, se she separated herself. And my understanding of the story uh, is that uh, when her book "A Choice, Not an Echo" uh, came out in support of Goldwater's '64 campaign, she resigned because the the question of extremism and the bircher taint. Uh, was uh, alive and she did not want, you know, to be branded a bircher uh, at that at that time. She actually denied, I think, at one point being a member of the society. But then um, there were some uh, historians who uncovered letters uh, in which uh, she's described herself or, or Welch, the founder, describes her as a member. She was very effective. And and actually in the anti-ERA movement of the 1970s, there were other uh, uh, former birchers or, uh, or active birchers who were very active in that movement as well. We mentioned anti-Semitism, but hasn't race also been one of their major issues? Absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, and you mentioned earlier that they oppose the Civil Rights Act. Um, Brown the, versus Board of Education. Yeah, yeah. So the birchers had two uh, campaigns uh, that, that go to this point. One was impeach Earl Warren, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And there were a lot of decisions that they hated that Warren had issued. But Brown versus Board of Education, the desegregation landmark decision was probably the most hated. The other uh, kind of prong on race, although there were others, too. They called they the pro-communist, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So King, they would put up these billboards. Uh, in fact, I think one billboard that have a picture of it in the book was uh, uh, on the road of one of Dr. King's marches in which they uh, uh, showed Dr. Martin Luther King at what they said was a communist training school. And they argued that the, the civil rights movement was a plot directed by the Kremlin. Um, they actually had a couple of African-American women spokespeople for the Birch Society who would go around the country uh, giving lectures is civil rights a, a plot directed by the Kremlin. And um, and so, you know, they saw it as uh, a foreign directed. Uh, it was not uh, an organic struggle on the part of African-Americans and some white Americans to achieve racial equality to the Birchers. It was a a foreign directed plot to destroy the Constitution and really deprive, as they said, Americans, white Americans, uh, uh, especially in the South, 
of their liberties to, uh, you know, operate their businesses as they saw fit, including uh, racially uh, discriminate on the basis of race. Now, she was for a time a member. What about others who uh, sound like they could have been, like Pat Buchanan, Alex Jones, uh, the, the leaders of the Tea Party? Well, it is interesting because um, the the more you uh, dig, um, there are interesting connections. And look, I don't want to sound myself conspiratorial because that's not my argument at all. But um, the people you mentioned, like Buchanan or Ron Paul or Alex Jones, none of them were members of the Burst Society, as far as I can tell. And I don't think they actually were. But uh, they all were arguably influenced by the Burt Society, and they had some ties to it. So Ron Paul, for example, um, you know, he was a fan of, of the Birch magazine, American Opinion. Uh, he said the Birchers, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Birch Society. They're constitutionalists. I agree with pretty much everything that, that they do. Um, uh, he uh, was very close to Larry McDonald, who was a, a, a leader of the Birch Society, uh, and uh, and they really aligned on a lot of uh, positions. And one of his chiefs of staff, a guy named Lou Rockwell, was a, a, a former Birch uh, leader as well. So there are all sorts of ties. And you can kind of go on down the list. Uh, Pat Buchanan, when he ran for president in 2000, his vice presidential nominee was in 2000, a spokeswoman, a spokesperson for the uh, Birch Society, Zola Foster. Uh, and uh, and so. Um, there are a lot of uh, and Alex Jones has said basically he's been inspired by uh, some Birch uh, uh, classics, uh, uh, Birch books such as None Dare Call It Treason. And they still have bookstores. Well, I don't think they have. They opened a whole bunch. Yeah, I don't think they have brick and mortar huh. bookstores as Anymore. they had in the '60s. One historian likened the Birch bookstores to uh, almost akin to coffee, the coffee houses. Uh, of the right, right? So coffee house to the left. These were the bookstores were the coffee houses for the Birchers. Um, I don't think they have them, but I do think one of the legacies that they helped to bequeath, although there were uh, other groups doing this too, uh, was this alternative universe of uh, information, right? Of uh, a conspiracy theories, of books, of magazines, really um, waging a kind of war for people's minds by shunning sort of the mainstream media to some extent and um, and putting out their own version of of the truth as they saw it. Right. Including things like, you know, this person's a communist. That textbook is communistic. Um, and they were very effective at doing that. And we pretty much run out of time. I did want to talk a bit about Bill Hahn, its current CEO. In 30 seconds, can you tell me a little bit about him? You know, I. Uh, I don't know. This is the current oh. CEO. So uh, I basically okay. end the I mean, I end the yeah, book. Your book is mostly 6th. about the past. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I really don't get in too much to the actual organization after the 19 mid 1970s because it, it becomes hollowed out. Well, but, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, but I, I have run out of time and I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. Also want to point out that the book has some really interesting illustrations. The book we've been discussing is Birchers, How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right from Basic Books. My great thanks to Matthew Dalek for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all the important work they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your, your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because we're going through a really rough time economically. A number of organizations are, but uh, I want to keep this one going because it's been played such an important role in free speech in this in our area. So we're asking all of our listeners who have may, had the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That give and the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. Because we need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now will can receive a, a copy of the book we've been discussing, Birch's How the John Birch Society Radicalized the American Right by Matthew Dowler. So why not make that call right now? Um, also, you might consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month. allows us to plan for the future. And we will say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to do that for $10 a month or more. I'll give the same phone number. But either way, the important thing is to support this station, the only one that relies totally on our listeners' support. Uh, it's the only New York station on the New York Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and your support is tax-deductible. We hope you can join us again on Monday, where my guest will be Michael G. Clavin discussing his new book, Symbols of Freedom. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.